Welcome to Royally Screwed, my name is Chris Shearer, and it's my honor to take you on a tour through some of history's greatest, worst, and craziest rulers. Everybody, it's the one-year anniversary of Royally Screwed. Thank you to everyone for listening to the show, whether this is your first episode or if you've been along for the journey since the beginning. Really, it means a lot to me that you're letting me share my love of history with all of you. So, in honor of the show's one-year anniversary, we're going back to episode one. Well, actually a bit before. The inaugural episode of Royally Screwed covered the series of fakers who claimed to be the son of Ivan the Terrible. We only very briefly touched on Ivan himself in that episode, so I think it's about time we actually covered the first man to call himself Tsar of all Russia. And we're going to make this anniversary episode extra special by technically continuing the Are They Great miniseries. What is terrible, if not the opposite of great. But not to spoil something before we even begin the show proper, but Ivan's nickname, The Terrible, was not given to him meaning bad, but more in line with the context of saying fear when referring to a god or ruler. It's something more akin to formidable. But to make things fun, we'll try to see whether or not this man deserves the modern definition of The Terrible. So without further ado, let's begin the story. We're going back in time to Russia of the 16th century in Ivan IV of Russia, Was He Terrible? We're going to be retreading some usual territory in this episode, considering the fact that we already covered the reign of Ivan's real son and fake sons, as well as jumping a bit further to cover Peter the Great. So let's get some quick and simple background facts out of the way before we actually start learning something new. Though Ivan would call himself the Tsar of all Russia, the name we actually give to his nation was the Grand Duchy of Moscow, aka Muscovy. It covered much of northwest Russia, centered around the city of Moscow, and parts of eastern Finland. It was a feudal state, meaning the land was divided up between the nobility who ruled over the serfs, aka the lower class laborers. The hoity-toity upper class of Muscovy at this time was a group called the Boyars. They had quite a bit of influence within the court of the Grand Prince of Moscow, the name of the position before Ivan would call himself Tsar, including the ability to elect a new Tsar slash prince if they really needed to do so. Ivan and his son Feodor were the last rulers of the Rurik dynasty. This dynasty was founded by a semi-legendary prince named Rurik who was possibly from Sweden or Denmark before setting out further east into Slavic territories to start his own nation. This was happening way back in the mid-9th century. Rurik founded his dynasty in Kiev, in modern-day Ukraine. Back then, Rurik and his people were known as the Kievan Rus. And not to go on a massive tangent, but this is sometimes used to this day to explain why Russia tries to claim sovereignty over territories within its neighboring countries. But back on point. The Kievan Rus would spread outwards until they eventually held territory in modern-day Russia. Rurik's descendants would eventually splinter out to create several different ruling territories centered around major cities within Russia. The Rurik branch known as the Yuryeviches would go on to establish the city of Moscow, thus being the founders of the Grand Duchy of Moscow, the Russian Tsardom, and finally, the Russian Empire. Muscovy was still a small territory, at least compared to modern-day Russia, but hey, what countries aren't small compared to Russia? 
there were dangers on all sides. If you've listened to previous Russian episodes, then you know that a constant rival to the people of Russia were the several different fractured remains of Genghis Khan's Mongolian Empire. You had the Tatars in Turkey, the Crimean Khanate, and the Kazan Khanate, just to name a few. To the west were also the other Slavic and Scandinavian powers who were eager to take on Russia for territory gain. As with Peter the Great, Ivan the Terrible will come to blows against all of them in his grand mission to rule Russia. But that's what every ruler does, right? While we'll definitely be covering the wars Ivan waged throughout his rule, those weren't necessarily the reason he gained the title, the Terrible. So how does a ruler gain such a daunting title? Because that definitely wasn't a title that would seemingly be necessary during the early parts of his rule. So let's actually start analyzing the rule of Ivan IV to find out if he's really deserving of being terrible. As with many other rulers who end up going bad by the end of things, Ivan's reign actually began pretty normally, and he actually did quite a bit to try to better Muscovy. Early in his reign, Ivan and some of the other boyars drafted a code of laws entitled the Sudebnik of 1550. Ivan's grandfather, oddly enough known as Ivan the Great, had drafted his own Sudebnik back in 1497. Ivan the Great's Sudebnik offered solutions to laws over corruption and described several examples of illegal activity. Ivan IV's Sudebnik sought to fill in the gaps of the code crafted by his grandfather. These gaps included defining fines and physical punishments for breaking certain laws. Other aspects outlined the exact nature of slavery within Muscovy, including how one could become a slave, such as selling oneself in order to repay a debt, as well as the rights of slaves and their owners. Around the same time as the drafting of the Stebnik, Ivan also founded the Streltsy, a brand new standing army for the Grand Duchy. This innovation would become especially helpful during the several wars Ivan's Russia fought in. The term Streltsy can be translated as shooter, but can also mean something equivalent to musketeer, aka a soldier with a musket. The members of the Streltsy, which numbered 3,000 upon creation, were the elite unit of the Russian military. Once you were inducted into the Streltsy, the position became hereditary. Your son was a Streltsy, his son was a Streltsy, and so on and so forth. The Streltsy also acted as police officers, firefighters, and the Tsar's personal bodyguards in Moscow. Outside of politics, Ivan also established the first printing house in Russia. The Moscow Print Yard was established in 1553, though it would not actually print its first book until over a decade later. Like most printing press locations of the time, the Moscow Print Yard was mostly used to make religious texts. The Print Yard also faced backlash from traditional book scribes who set fire to the Moscow Print Yard during the Time of Troubles after the death of Ivan's successor, Feodor. But holy books need a place to be read, and boy did Ivan make a really great one. Ivan was a very devoted follower of the Russian Orthodox Church, which had both its benefits for his nation as well as its detriments, though that's for much later in the episode. After a military victory in Kazan in mid-1550s, which I'll get into later, Ivan issued the construction of the Cathedral of Vasily the Blessed. 
the architect of the cathedral was a man named Posnik Yakovlev. I'll put pictures of this place on social media, but you've probably seen it before. If you've seen any pictures of Moscow or watched any TV show or movie that takes place there, you've seen the Cathedral of St. Vasily. It's the one with a million different colors with domes that look like Fabergé eggs. A legend says that Ivan was so enamored with the creation that he had Yakovlev blinded so that the architect could never design anything as beautiful as the cathedral ever again. Well, Yakovlev did continue to design buildings, so either that legend is false or Yakovlev was still a master architect even without his sight. But things were not completely calm in Ivan's Grand Duchy. After all, there was a reason he had created the Streltsy. It's time to leave the homeland and look at Ivan's relationship with his neighbors. for the course for most rulers of the time, especially Russian rulers, there was almost never a time when Ivan was in power that Muscovy was not at war. His nation would fight wars on every single side, except for the north because no one lives in the Arctic Ocean. Let's start with Ivan bringing an end to a very long Russian conflict. During this time in history, there was a group of Tatars, ethnically Central Asians who were incorporated into the Mongolian Empire who lived in what is now central eastern Russia. This was the Khanate of Kazan. Dating back to before Ivan was born, the Muscovites and Tatars of Kazan were at war with each other. By 1551, Ivan was sending envoys to other groups in the area, mostly other Khanates who were not openly hostile to Russia, stating that the Grand Prince was planning on waging a war against the Khanate of Kazan and looking for either an alliance or neutrality. Ivan then ordered for the Streltsy to attack the Khanate. After an initial victory gave Russia the ability to take control of some of the territories in the Khanate, their enemies retreated back into the city of Kazan. After securing several allies and gaining cooperation from them, in late August of 1552, Ivan ordered his army to attack the city of Kazan. While the 3,000 Streltsy definitely had their part to play, the entire Muscovite alliance is said to have numbered around 150,000. This massive army laid siege to the city until midway through October. The Kazan Tatars eventually gave in, allowing Ivan to fully annex the Khanate. That didn't stop all of his troubles with the Tatars, though. Further dissidents reared their heads and led rebellions against the reign of Ivan IV. Several years later, in 1556, Ivan ordered the capture of the Astrakhan Khanate, which was located further south along the Volga River. His forces conquered the new opponents, bringing a brief period of respite from the Tatars. They would still be allowed to speak their languages and practice their religions, mostly Islam, but harsh penalties were enacted for all Tatars within Ivan's territories. Ironically, Ivan's conquest of Astrakhan would land him into a brand new war, this time against the Ottoman Empire. During this time, the empire was under the rule of Sultan Selim II, son of Suleiman the Magnificent who we previously covered on the show. The war was initiated in 1568 by Selim's Grand Vizier, a man named Sokolu Mehmet Pasha. The Ottomans were upset that Russians' occupation of Astrakhan was causing problems for Muslim pilgrims of Central Asia passing through Ivan's territories. The war lasted for only two years before Ivan's government managed to reach a peace treaty with the Ottomans in early 1570. This was actually the first of 12 Russo-Turkic wars. 
the final Russo-Turkic War ended with World War I, with an Ottoman victory, though I'd say only technically on both sides because Russia was collapsing into the Soviet Union and the Ottomans would dissolve the empire only a few years later. Is it still considered a victory when neither side exists? Throughout the next decade, Ivan would also fight in wars against two other Khanates, the Sabir Khanate in Siberia and the Khanate of Crimea. The war against the Sabir Khanate had begun when a Khan who was loyal to Ivan died shortly after the siege of Kazan. His replacement was not as enthusiastic about the Tsar, especially with Ivan's decision to explore and expand eastward into Siberia. This war forced Ivan's armies and boyars to work with the Cossacks, who were groups of self-governing individuals living in Eastern Europe who usually ended up being hired out as mercenaries. The Cossacks took control of things in the early 1580s, during which they managed to briefly push back the Sabir Khanate and take lands in Siberia for themselves, much to the chagrin of the boyars Ivan had promised the land to originally. However, the locals of Siberia eventually rebelled and defeated the Cossacks. Russia wouldn't actually gain any real territories in Siberia until 1586, after the death of Ivan the Terrible. Crimea was equally as messy for Ivan. The war originally started in 1571 after years of the Crimean Khanate raiding Muscovy for slaves to sell in the Ottoman Empire. The early military attempts against the combined Tatar and Turkish army proved disastrous for Ivan's military, including the Crimeans burning the city of Moscow. Russia was actually forced to give up the territories in Astrakhan they had only recently gained. A year later, in 1572, Ivan placed his troops under the command of Prince Mikhail Vorotinsky. Under Vorotinsky, the Russian military was able to deal a major blow to the combined Tatar and Ottoman Empire. Russia would not actually gain any land in Crimea, though, until the 17th century. But with the Tatars and Turks out of the way, Ivan had secured his eastern and southern borders. All that was left was the glaring problem of Europe in the West. Just like Peter the Great a century and a half later, Ivan really wanted land on the Baltic Sea, which at this point was controlled by a group called the Livonians. In 1558, Ivan declared war on the Teutonic Knights of Livonia. His initial war efforts proved rather successful. He captured two Livonian cities, which forced the Teutonic Knights to dissolve their order. However, this victory was not all that it seemed. With Livonia falling apart, the other Eastern European nations quickly swooped in to stake their claims to the former territory, and all of them were quite eager to stop Ivan and Muscovy from gaining more land. Opposing Ivan were the Union of Poland-Lithuania, the Kingdom of Denmark-Norway, that's one nation, Denmark-Norway, and not the two nations separate, same goes for Poland-Lithuania, the Kingdom of Sweden, and the Principality of Transylvania. Thus began the long-winded 24 years of the Livonian War. To make a long story short, the war was a total disaster for Muscovy. It ended in 1583 with almost all of the territory Russia gained during the war being divided among the opposing forces, with most of the land going to Poland-Lithuania. But Ivan's relationship with Europe was not an entirely hostile one. As I said before, Ivan was a very devout Orthodox Christian, 
so he tried to maintain a healthy relationship with the other Orthodox leaders. At one point, Ivan sent aid to help the Orthodox Patriarch of Alexandria, Egypt, which I know isn't in Europe, but just go with me, when a monastery there had been attacked by the Ottomans. Apparently, Ivan's envoy gifted the Patriarch a fur coat, which is the most Russian gift I can think of. Ivan also maintained an actually pretty good relationship with Queen Elizabeth, the one from Shakespearean times, not the current Queen of England, if that wasn't obvious. They maintained a healthy correspondence via English merchants delivering letters back and forth. Ivan even went so far as to waive regular fees to British ships docking at the port in the city of Arkhangelsk. While it seems like Elizabeth was interested in keeping up a strong commercial relationship, Ivan was very interested in seeking a military alliance should the need arrive. Oddly enough, the English did not aid Moscow during the Livonian War. But what Ivan wanted the most from the British Queen was assurance to grant him asylum should the need arise. Why did he think he would need asylum? Well, I think it's about time we dive into how Ivan actually ruled his nation. Ivan the Terrible's most interesting and infamous domestic policy was his introduction of the Abrishnina. And a very basic background of where Ivan was at mentally before I explain what the Abrishnina was. The Livonian War was going terribly. Some of Ivan's loyal commanders had defected to Poland Lithuania. And around 1560, his wife Anastasia died, possibly due to poisoning. Things were very bleak for Ivan but I'll get more into his personal life later. The boyars were beginning to turn on the man who had proclaimed himself Tsar of all Russia. So what does Ivan do? In 1565, he decided to divide Muscovy in two. About half of the nation would remain as it was. The Council of Boyars would oversee regular political control. This portion was called the Zemshchina. The other portion of Muscovy would be completely under Ivan's full autocratic control, meaning he no longer was beholden to the whims of the boyars. That part was called the Oprichnina, which comes from the Russian word oprich, which means set apart from. Within the Oprichnina, those most loyal to Ivan, meaning anyone of any background and not just boyars and other nobles, could become what was called an oprichnik. The Oprishniki were basically given free roam of the territory. And let me make something clear here. Muscovy was not divided cleanly in half. No, Ivan randomly picked and chose different sections of Muscovy to be in the Oprishnina. That meant certain cities could be in, but the town next door wasn't. Cities could be divided in two or three or four. Sometimes individual buildings were chosen while their surroundings were excluded. And hey, if your place of residence was chosen to be in the Oprishnina, but you as a person weren't, you were forced to move out. The dissenters were gone. It was now the age of the Oprishniki. So what did the Oprishniki actually do? Some say they were essentially the precursor to the KGB of the Soviet Union. You know, the usual secret police, you say something wrong, you disappear in a dark alley. There's been many valid theories, but no legitimate proof as to what daily life was like for Ivan's new elite. There's almost no contemporary record stating their actions besides the fact that they actually existed and would go about getting rid of traitors to Ivan's rule. 
and to add to that mysteriousness was their image. The Aparishniki apparently dressed in all black and rode black horses. They were essentially the ringwraiths from Lord of the Rings, but Russian. Their symbols were a broom and the head of a dog, apparently symbolizing sweeping away dissenters and biting at the heels of the Tsar's enemies. All of this new sense of power and controlling the Aparishniki made Ivan, who was already a superstitious and paranoid man, even that much more wary of the other powerful citizens of Muscovy. By 1570, things were nearing a cataclysmic level of bad. There was an epidemic killing thousands, a famine, and the ongoing Livonian War. One of the cities hit hardest by all of this was Novgorod. Rumors circulated towards Ivan that Novgorod was planning to defect to the side of Poland-Lithuania. Ivan was not going to stand for that, so he called in the Aprishniki. They immediately sacked the churches of Novgorod because Ivan believed it was the clergy who were truly behind the rumored treason. After going for the churches, Ivan had the Aprishniki torture and kill the nobility of the city. The middle class, which was mostly made up of merchants, had their stores destroyed and they were forced into submission to prevent any rebellions. And not to be left out, Ivan had the poorer citizens expelled from the city. All of this was happening in January of 1570, meaning it was in the middle of winter and freezing. By banishing the lower class, Ivan was leaving them to die. After over a month of chaos under the terror of the Obrushniki, Ivan ordered his special forces to move on from the city, leaving it in the hands of the few citizens who remained. In the aftermath of the attack, a Russian newspaper said that nearly 60,000 people had lost their lives. More modern historians believe the number was actually somewhere between 2,000 and 12,000, which is still a lot. The thing is, without proper records from this time, we'll never know how many people actually died during the sack of Novgorod. After Novgorod, Ivan had the Aprichniki turn to the city of Peskov, where they enacted a similar but less deadly reign of terror. From Peskov, Ivan had the Aprichniki turn back to Moscow to dig out dissenters within his own royal court. The Aprichnina and the Aprichniki did not last for much longer after that. After the Abrishnina failed to stop the Crimean Tatars from burning down Moscow in 1571, Ivan decided to call it quits on his grand operation. In 1572, the Abrishnina and the Zemshchina were rejoined under a new boyar consul made up from members of both the old nobility and former members of the Abrishnina. But here's something interesting. While the Crimean Tatar attack on Moscow is mostly given as the reason for the dissolution of the Abrishnina, not everyone believes that Ivan found his horrific experiment a failure. There's the classic belief that Ivan formed the Aprishnina and the Aprishniki because he was insane. There are others, however, that believe Ivan planned for all of this chaos in order to shake the faith of the boyars. He had proven that he was capable of bringing Muscovy to its knees by his own hands by putting the fear of all things unholy into the boyars. If his plan was to weaken the boyars, then Ivan definitely succeeded. In one of the most messed up ways, but a success is a success. We've talked quite a bit about Ivan as a ruler, but not much as an actual man. 
The point of Were They Great isn't really to examine the actual ruler as much as it is to see if their reign as king, queen, emperor, etc. was actually great. But this isn't Were They Great, it's Was He Terrible, and the one year anniversary so I get to play by my own rules. To get an actual picture of the guy, we can turn to a Russian ambassador from the time who described Ivan as follows. He is tall, stout, and full of energy. His eyes are big, observing, and restless. His beard is reddish-black, long and thick, but most other hairs on his head are shaved off according to the Russian habits of the time. Others have described him as powerfully built and unpleasant to look at. Based on the evidence after excavating his body from its grave back in the 60s, Ivan was about 178 centimeters tall, or about 5 foot 10, and somewhere between 187 to 198 pounds. It was also discovered that he had plenty of damage around his joints caused by possibly multiple bone diseases. He also had an excessive amount of mercury in his body, probably from medicine that was supposed to help said bone diseases. But that's enough about the man's physicality. Let's talk about his family. I already mentioned his wife, Anastasia. She was his first wife, Anastasia Romanova. And no, she wasn't that Anastasia. Ivan would go on to have at least five more wives. Some stories say he had eight in total, but only six can actually be accounted for. Together, Ivan and Anastasia had six children, including his sons, Ivan and Feodor the latter of whom would go on to succeed his father as Tsar. None of their other children survived more than a couple years. After Anastasia, Ivan married Maria Temryakovna. They only had one son named Vasily who died only a couple months after his birth. In 1569, Maria passed away. Ivan's third wife was a woman named Marfa Sobakina. Stories say that Marfa was accidentally poisoned by her own mother shortly before her marriage to the Tsar. Allegedly, Marfa's mother was hoping to give her a treatment to increase her fertility that ended up leading to her daughter's death only a couple weeks after her marriage to Ivan. Her death only exacerbated Ivan's paranoia due to it reminding him of Anastasia's poisoning. Now here's an interesting fact about the Russian Orthodox Church. I'm not sure if this is still a law, but in Ivan's time, you were allowed to marry up to three times, though even the third marriage is considered crossing a line. After Marfa's death, Ivan decided he would marry a woman named Anna Kaltovskaya. The church only agreed to his desires after he pleaded with them. Unfortunately, after two years without producing an heir, Ivan decided to send Anna to a convent. His fifth wife was another woman named Anna. Anna Vasilchikova, to be precise. They were married without the consent of the church. She too was sent to become a nun. Next comes two women whose existence are heavily disputed, so we'll skip over them. Ivan's last wife was Maria Nagaya. She would outlive Ivan and give birth to his son Dmitri, aka the subject of the very first episode of this show. Now that we somewhat know his family, let's take a look at one last major event that will add to the pile of Ivan's misdeeds. His oldest living son and heir to the throne was Ivan, who I'll call Ivan Jr. so it's not confusing. Ivan Jr. was married three times because his father sent his first two wives to a convent because they never got pregnant. Luckily, his third wife eventually became pregnant so she could stick around. 
One day in November of 1581, Tsar Ivan started berating Ivan Jr.'s wife Yelena over her choice of clothing, which, yeah, yikes. The Tsar eventually started beating his own daughter-in-law. The attack led to Yelena suffering a miscarriage. Defending his wife's honor, Ivan Jr. confronted his father over the matter. During this point in time, the relationship between the two Ivans was deteriorating due to Ivan Jr.'s perception of his father as a failed leader due to the worsening state of the Livonian War. Ivan then accused his son of treason and struck him on the head with his scepter. Ivan Jr. immediately went down, profusely bleeding from his head. The shock of the attack broke Ivan from his anger and he apparently begged his son to forgive him which Ivan Jr. did when he eventually regained consciousness. But forgiveness was not enough, because Ivan Jr. eventually passed away from his injuries. With Ivan Jr. dead, the throne of Muscovy fell to Ivan's son Feodor, who probably suffered from either mental illness or some other cognitive impairment that left him as a poor choice for ruler of the nation. And after Feodor died without siring any heirs, Muscovy fell into the time of troubles, and the dynasty of Rurik came to an end. Before I officially judge Ivan on whether or not he was terrible, and I really hope you know what the answer to that is by this point, let's end his story. On March 28, 1584, Ivan was in Moscow, presumably in his palace, getting ready to play a game of chess. Against who? History says a man named Bogdan Yakovlevich Belsky, who was one of Ivan's closest advisors. Sorry if you were hoping for someone more important or famous like Queen Elizabeth. I don't know if the chess match ever actually began or not, but Ivan suffered a stroke and died in Belsky's arms. He was 53 years old and had ruled as the first Tsar of all Russia for 37 years. And I guess one last piece of trivia before we head on to the deliberation. In case you were wondering why he got to be Tsar instead of just Grand Prince, it's actually a really simple story. Ivan's grandfather, Ivan the Great, had called himself Tsar, which is the Slavic version of the title Caesar, much like the German title Kaiser is German for Caesar. Ivan III's self-proclaimed title of Tsar was never official, and for some reason Ivan the Terrible's father, Vasily III, never decided to take on the title. But when Ivan was crowned at the age of 16, he decided to make the Tsar title official. Peter the Great, the first emperor of Russia, became emperor because of his military expertise. Ivan the Terrible became Tsar of all Russia just because he said he wanted to be called that. Says a lot about the guy. Anyways, let's get on with Ivan the Terrible's score. Was he actually terrible? I'll divide this up into two different rankings. One will be terrible in the modern English sense of the word, meaning awful or even evil. The other ranking will be based on the Russian term Grozny, which was translated as terrible but actually means something closer to formidable. I mean, do I really even have to go into detail here? Yes, Ivan was an awful leader most of his reign was spent losing wars. Obviously, the Oprishnya plan, which resulted in the sack of Novgorod, is absolutely terrible. 
and even though this ranking is based on his job as ruler and not as a human being, Ivan was also just a terrible man. He sent women to convents because they never got pregnant. He beat his daughter-in-law for wearing clothes he didn't like. He murdered his son. Awful, horrific, terrible. But yeah, I guess he's also terrible in the Grozny definition as well. Even though he lost his big wars, Ivan still managed to hobble the Tatars in both the east and the south. Also, if his implementation of the Afrishina and Afrishniki was actually to weaken the boyars and force them to obey his rule, that is definitely formidable. So I guess on the terrible scale, Ivan gets an A. Congrats, man. You sucked. Since we covered all the ground I wanted to on Ivan the Terrible, I once more just wanted to thank everyone who listens to this show. Without your support, even if your support is just downloading an episode and listening to it, I wouldn't feel like continuing with this project of mine. But thanks to all of you, I've now been doing this for one whole year, and I hope to continue doing it for many more. And if you want to help the show continue for who knows how long, feel free to offer a suggestion for leaders you'd like to see me cover. Be they great or be they terrible, I'd love to hear your thoughts. As long as it's not Hitler or Stalin, I won't do them, so don't ask. But for now, that's it for the one-year anniversary episode of Royally Screwed. I hope you enjoyed the journey. Be sure to subscribe to the show, tell a friend, and subscribe to the Denim Creek page on Twitter and Instagram for more info about each episode. Next time, we're continuing on with the Julio-Claudian saga. It's going to be a big one as we finally see the full transition of Rome from Republic to Empire under Emperor Augustus. I hope you'll join me then for another topsy-turvy look into history's most interesting rulers. (laughs) 